informed dissent. The intersection of healthcare and politics with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board-certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald, board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Well, Mark, welcome to another episode of Informed Dissent. Great to be with you. You too. Proud to be back here. And as always, we've got a uh, fantastic guest uh, to join us tonight uh, that will, uh, I think, hopefully be really interesting uh, to our audience, and that's uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, uh, who has really come on the scene during COVID. He's one of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But he holds degrees from, actually four degrees, I understand, from Stanford University, including an MD from Stanford Medical School and a PhD in economics. Jay, welcome to Informed Dissent. Great to have you on. Great to be on. So you hold four degrees. What are the other two? <laughs> I did my uh, my undergraduate degree at Stanford, uh, and then I did a master's. Well, listen, it's great having you on and uh, would love to hear more about um, where you are right now in this whole COVID thing. First, I think it'd be interesting for our audience. Everybody's heard, at least peripherally, about the Great Barrington Declaration. How did that come about? And, uh, and tell our audience a little bit about what it is and why it's still applicable today. So the, the Great Barrington Declaration, uh, it's based on two scientific facts, basically indisputable. One is that there's a very steep age gradient in the mortality risk from COVID. So older people are much higher risk of dying. Um, younger people are much, much, much lower risk of dying. Um, the second fact is that the lockdowns, the school closures, the, the restrictions have been tremendously damaging to the young. Um, and uh, so you put those facts together, you get a policy of focused protection of the older population um, and then lifting the lockdowns for the rest of the population. Um, that was, we wrote that in October of 2020. Um, I wrote it with Sunetra Gupta of Oxford University. She's, I think, one of the very best uh, 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 infectious disease epidemiologists in the world. And then, um, and then Martin Kuldorf at Harvard University, who was a, a biostatistician and epidemiologist there, an expert in vaccine safety. Um, so what we argued, we wrote this in October of 2020, um, and it got a lot of attention. Tens of thousands of doctors signed on. Um, you all signed on, if I understand it correctly. Um, we did. I, thank you for that. Um, I, and I, and I, uh, the, the problem was that the, uh, the powers that be, you know, uh, the NIH, Tony Fauci, Francis Collins, they met this proposal, which is essentially the, the policy that we followed for a century of respiratory viral pandemics, with a, a fierce uh, defamation campaign. Uh, Tony Fauci uh, and Francis Collins uh, tried to make it sound like we wanted to let the virus rip rather than protecting older people. Um, you know, why do you want to let the virus rip? Why do you want to let kill grandma? Um, uh, when, you know, what we're calling for is a discussion about how to better protect older people. 80% of the deaths have been over 60, people over 65. This was in October of 2020. And when the vaccines came online, that was a perfect point to say, look, uh, we can use the vaccines in older people. We don't know all of the side effects yet, but we know that COVID itself is bad in older people. I mean, they lift the lockdowns. We could have just ended it in, say, March of 2021 uh, with the vaccines and the Great Barrington Declaration. Instead, we've had, you know, uh, continual restrictions. Uh, I think they've now started to lift and people are starting to realize the harms um, to children, for instance. I just saw a report today about the learning loss in kids whose test scores have just plummeted. 
especially places like California, where we kept schools closed for so long. Um, and it's a very unequal distribution where older, where, where like poor kids, uh, were harmed more than richer kids because then, you know, you could, the richer families could re- replace what, uh, uh, replace what the, what the poor, uh, their the learning loss, whereas poor kids didn't have families that have the resources to do that. Um, and, uh, around the world, the devastation is enormous. Uh, on the order of a hundred million people thrown into poverty uh, because of the economic dislocation caused by the lockdown, less than two dollars a day of income. Um, you know, tens, ten million, ten, millions and millions of people uh, thrown onto the brink of starvation. Um, we have a lot of repair to do now, uh, and uh, had we followed the Great Granton Declaration, I think we would have had better outcomes regarding COVID and also better outcomes regarding all the other health needs of the population. How did your Stanford colleagues treat you uh, when you went public with the Great Barrington Declaration? Uh, I have to say it was mixed. So I had, uh, there, was, there were Stanford colleagues that signed on to it. Um, and, uh, and Stanford colleagues who wrote to me quietly saying, I, I, great, keep going, Jay, great idea. Um, uh, but I also had a group of colleagues who, um, I mean, they just, they engaged in a, in a defamation campaign against me. Um, at one point uh, in 2021, the uh, some faculty in the epidemiology department circulated a secret petition um, trying to get me censored by the by the president of the university. Uh, it, it was it was a really tough time. Stanford made it a a uh, hostile work environment for the last two two years, two plus years. Now you're still there doing research, though, correct? Yes. Yeah, I'm still a faculty member, standing a full professor. Um, yeah, I did. I mean. If I don't, <laughs> I have tenure. Uh, if I don't use my tenure to say what I believe in my field, in my expertise, then what's the purpose of tenure? Uh, so um, I, I do think if I hadn't had tenure, it would have been difficult. But uh, thankfully, I did. Jay, tell us a little bit also about the Academy of Science and Freedom that was created at Hillsdale College. I know you're associated with that. Yeah, so I'm a co-founder of that with Martin Kuldorf, uh and um, and with uh, Scott Atlas. The uh, the idea uh, with two missions for the Academy of Science and Freedom. The first is, uh, well, let me set this up. Uh, the scientific discussion during the pandemic has been really restricted. If you didn't toe the party line, you were going to get smeared, canceled. Just, uh, you're going to get hit pieces written about you by by the press. It made it difficult for people who didn't agree with what the what powerful uh, scientific bureaucrats like Tony Fauci think to to dissent. And uh, so the first mission of the Academy of Science and Freedom is to restore free uh, discussion of scientific ideas within science, to create a better environment for science so that uh, people who have uh, ideas that are at odds with powerful scientific bureaucrats don't feel threatened, their careers threatened if they, if they, uh, if they speak up. Um, the second mission is that science, I mean, in a, in, in a very unfortunate way, Science took on a ruling role, like it essentially became, uh, you know, follow the science meant we have to do everything that Tony Fauci said. Um, that uh, <laughs> that was that's not what science is for. Science is for advising. It doesn't, um, it, it, you know, science can tell you if you do A, then B will happen, right? But it, it can't tell you whether you want B to happen. That may involve trade-offs with other other policies. You have to have uh, uh, a broader view than just the, simply the scientific facts to decide what the right policy is. Science should advise, science should not rule. 
Um, and so that's the second mission, to restore the proper place of science in society. Have you offered at all those that disagree with you a platform for debate? I know Peter McCullough has offered anybody that disagrees uh, to come share a stage with him and talk, talk facts and, and debate the issues. Has Hillsdale uh, or this new foundation that you created, have you guys wanted to do that as well? Uh, so we haven't had debates with it within the context of the Academy of Science and Freedom, but we ha I have had the opportunity to do a number of debates with prominent people on the other side in, in, uh, of, the, of the lockdown argument. Uh, so for instance, in 2020, I think November, I did a debate with Mark Lipsitch of Harvard, at, uh, hosted by the Journal of American Medical Association. Um, in uh, uh, September 2020, I did a debate, the monk debates with Stan Verman, the head, uh, the head of epidemiology at Yale, or public health at Yale. Um, so I've had some opportunities. Actually, I've been, at Stanford, it's been quite disappointing. It's been very difficult to get the other side to engage on the arguments. Uh, instead, they've, uh, as I said, like operated to try to get me effectively canceled, uh, uh, create a hostile work environment. Um, it's, it's, been, it's been very disappointing. I've, I've been at Stanford for 36 years, Jeff. And it's, uh, it is really shocking to me to see what Stanford's become. The, the motto is supposed to be, the motto is, uh, the winds of freedom blow. Uh, but they really have not blown the last two and a half years. Well, certainly the winds of freedom in California uh, have not blown, as Mark and I know. And we're involved in a lawsuit against AB 2098. And for those that don't know what that is, it's a law that the governor signed that basically says that if you're spreading misinformation or disinformation, that the Medical Board of California can take your license away. <clears throat> I find it really interesting that many members of the Medical Board of California, all of whom are appointed by the governor, are not even physicians. The president of the Medical Board of California is an attorney. And so I always ask kind of rhetorically the question, imagine the California bar being uh, headed up by a physician. <laughs> they wouldn't tolerate that, but yet here we have a non-physician, many of them, on the medical board, and they're going to determine what the standard of practice is uh, and then take physicians' licenses away if we're not mimicking the government narrative as it relates to COVID. One of them so, is a life coach, I believe. Yeah, that could be. So Liberty Justice Center is representing us. We filed the case in federal court as as in uh, that we believe this law is unconstitutional and I think it's sitting on the judge's desk and we're waiting for at least a ruling to see if we can get an injunction to prevent this from going into law and it's supposed to go into law January 2023. I mean, it's absolutely shocking to me. Uh, essentially what this law does is it puts the, the CDC in the examination room with the doctor and the patient. And so now doctors are going to be policed uh, for their uh, uh, their their fealty to CDC orders, even if, uh, so for instance, if you have a patient and the CDC orders don't make sense for that particular patient because there are things that the CDC didn't consider in that patient's history, you're going to worry whether you, whether you, if you tell them to do the right thing, uh, that you'll get reported and you lose your license. It essentially undermines between doctor and patient. Um, I mean, that's on the one side. That's, and I, it's, it's also shocking to me that I think if I understand right, the California Medical Association uh, supported the law. They did not stand up for physicians to, to have uh, basic practice rights, which I, you know, this long history. I mean, I, basically, California needs a new medical uh, medical association if, if the current one won't stand up for basic physician practice rights. Um, 
And the other thing that this does, and this is something you all have experienced, I know, I know I've, I've experienced it, um, the, the, the purpose of the law, although it's nominally to police what happens in the examination room, in fact, what the, the actual purpose is, is to silence dissent by doctors who will be scared to speak up. The, 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 the Senate, uh, this guy, Richard Penn, is a state senator who's a co-sponsor of the law in the, in the state Senate. He, he, uh, he's been attacking me on Twitter over and over again. Um, in this, I mean, I don't see patients. I do research full time. That's my, my job is not to see patients. My, my job is to say, is the CDC, uh, saying doing the right thing? Is it consistent with the evidence? My job is to develop evidence. Um, I, I don't have the ability to do that. Then why even, you know, you're just, you basically, you may as well just, uh, you know, throw dice in the air and look, follow what it does. Cause the CDC doesn't have, uh, is, is not the, you know, the, the fount of all wisdom. You need debate. Um, and, uh, it's, it's funny that the got the, 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 the you know, Senator Dick Penn is attacking me because what he's trying to do is send a message to everybody else, other doctors, you know, be quiet or else I'm going to defame you. I'm going to besmirch you. I'm going to attack you, uh, unfairly. Um, it's, uh, it's the purpose of the law is to silence debate among doctors to make it so that there's no independent check on the CDC by doctors in California. That's right. You know, if for a physician to follow this law, what they will need to do when a patient is in their exam room talking about COVID is a physician literally will be forced to consider the state's position when deciding on a treatment plan for a patient. Because if you give a, an opinion that's different than the state's position, then that would be considered going against scientific consensus, at least the government's consensus, and they could sanction you. And, you know, if you look at the law itself, and I've read it multiple times, there's a line in it that says the following, and I'm quoting, misinformation means false information that is contradicted by contemporary scientific consensus. And the problem is there really isn't such a thing as scientific consensus. The only way you get scientific consensus is when dissenting opinions are censored, and that's what's happened. And so this nonsense that there somehow is this scientific consensus put forward by the medical board or policed by the medical board is, is dangerous. And the reason why I'm involved in this is really not my, for myself, although certainly it'll hurt physicians, it's for patients because doctors will be prevented from giving second opinions. If you come in to see a doctor and you want an opinion about anything related to COVID, Doctors are going to be muted. They're going to be very hesitant to give their honest opinion based on their wisdom and experience and the totality of the case that they see for fear of running afoul of the medical board and then having, having their license be at risk. So we already have a deficit in California of primary care physicians. We have doctors that are leaving the state because of all these draconian laws. And if this thing actually goes into effect in January, you're going to see older physicians retiring earlier younger physicians moving out of state, less people attending medical school. And it's, it's very, very bad for patients, um, not to mention doctors, but that's why I'm involved is really to protect the right of a patient to seek a medical opinion from a doctor of their choice. I mean, uh, it's pretty common in medical practice where the, the cons consensus attaches itself to one idea, one treatment idea. Um, and then evidence then develops that says that treatment idea is, is wrong, right? So for, I'll give an example. In maternal fetal medicine, there's this drug called Makina, I, I don't know how to pronounce it, um, that uh, gives this hydroxyprogesterone. 
that, that was approved of standard of care for use. Uh, and uh, what happened was that a whole bunch of evidence in scientific journals developed that it was, it was actually harmful to patients. So doctors, bucking the guidelines, told their patients, don't take this. Just yesterday or a couple of days ago, the FDA pulled the drug. So what you have is a, a setting where doctors can't give their reasoned judgment about what's best for patients based on their reading of the evidence. I, I, that will harm patients. That will certainly harm patients. You cannot have a situation where doctors are not allowed to practice medicine. That's essentially what 2098 does. Um, you, you, uh, you have to have uh, the capacity to say, no, this is not right, and develop evidence against it, uh, make arguments against it. And certainly you should be able, need to be able to uh, account for the patient's particular situation and history, right? The CDC doesn't know its history. The California Medical Association doesn't know the patient's history, but the doctor does. Uh, and you make decisions based on a complicated set of things, one of only one thing of which is what uh, what the, the CDC is recommending. Speaking of what the CDC is recommending, remember in August, they changed their COVID guidelines and they came out specifically and said, patients that have no symptoms do not need to be tested for COVID. Yet that premise was the entire reason why many of the draconian lockdowns occurred. So we closed down schools because we were told that asymptomatic kids can go to school, spread it to their friends, spread it to their teachers. All those people would then go home and kill grandma and grandpa. And it was based on this notion that there was a significant asymptomatic spread. And now the CDC comes out, the so-called scientific consensus from their perspective has now changed. And they said, just kidding, you no longer need to, to test asymptomatic people. You now treat vaccinated and unvaccinated alike. So their own consensus, whatever that is, now has changed. So if I spoke against it previously, I'd be running afoul of the medical board. If I speak against it now, they're going to want to take my license away. So it's, it's, it's just insane. And then, of course, we're all aware that the uh, Advisory Committee on Immunizations recently recommended that we should add the COVID vaccine to the childhood schedule of vaccinations. And I don't know... I don't really know how to say it any gentler, but I think, I think it's a crime. I think it's directly going to harm our children if states actually take on these recommendations. And most importantly, I worry that it's going to create vaccine hesitancy, not just for the COVID vax, but across all vaccines, regardless of how people feel, because the CDC is no longer going to be trusted to the extent that there's any trust left. And when they take on this ridiculous, unscientific recommendation, uh, it just throws water on the whole thing. And I just worry that no longer is the CDC going to even be viewed as a legitimate uh, health promoting organization. What's your feeling about this new ruling from this uh, advisory committee? I mean, I think uh, I think I think the the. Uh, uh uh, so, so, so you had two things. Like you, saw, you said about the asymptomatic spread, um, and the CDC changing its guidance on that. Uh, that is, you know, the, there we knew early on in the pandemic that there was uh, uh, for for schools to stay open was actually quite safe. You had a, you had a, a, a evidence from Iceland, from Sweden, from from um, a, a, a number of 
of European countries early in the pandemic that suggested that schools reflected community spread, didn't drive community spread. And on that basis of that evidence, most schools in most periods in Europe uh, pushed towards staying open. In Sweden, for kids under 15, the school stayed open the entire pandemic, didn't close at all. The basis for the school closures was this idea of asymptomatic spread. And then they were like testing people, testing asymptomatic kids, um, finding incidental positives. Who knew what, whether it was, a, was, was the likelihood of actually spreading the disease, um, whether it was dead virus or, or you know, a dead, you know, sort of uh, the, the likelihood of infectiousness is, is, might have been quite low. Um, and uh, the harm from closing the schools, of course, is much greater. So uh, the CDC finally changing its mind was, was quite a good thing. Um, okay, so you said a second thing, actually, Jeff. Uh, so you, you talked about the advisory committee on putting, adding the, uh, the, the, the vaccines, to the, the COVID vaccines to the childhood schedule. I, I don't see the argument for that. I mean, the risk for children is very low from COVID itself. Uh, there's very, there is no clinical trial data that uh, randomized clinical trial data that shows there's any clinical benefit in terms of reduced mortality or reduced uh, hospitalization risk for children um, from this uh, from this disease this uh, from this vaccine and the vaccine itself does not stop transmission of the disease. So what is the argument? Um, and I agree with you and your concern about what will happen to the trust in um, other childhood vaccines. I think we're already seeing that we're seeing a decline in the uptake of of uh, absolutely essential vaccines like the MMR vaccine or the or the DPT vaccine or the polio vaccine. It's not an accident that we have had, um, um, you know, a resurgence of some of those diseases around the world. Uh, the trust in public health has already suffered. And by putting this vaccine on the schedule, a lot of parents, you know, the parents, if you look at the uptake for this vaccine, the COVID vaccine for kids, it's really low, maybe three, four, five percent. This is despite an enormous propaganda campaign by the by the CDC to push parents to do this. Um, parents don't trust the CDC. They're not push, they're not using this vaccine in their uh, in their voluntarily uptaking it. What that means then is you you put it on the schedule. You essentially want to create pressure on parents to, to take the vaccine. That's going to cause distrust in the whole schedule, I think, and it's really unfortunate. You know, I have some ideas about what the motive, underlying motivation is for why the uh, ACIP Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices made this unanimous 15 to zero recommendation. What What do you think? Do you have any do you, Do you have any thoughts about why they would do such a thing and why the CDC is going to go along with it? I sat in on the um, on the I sat in the, on the discussion. The arguments seem to be that uh, the vaccine is is pretty safe. We don't know for sure what it does. It, it, it boosts antibodies in, in children. And there's some risk from COVID for children. That seems to be the argument. But they didn't really weigh the cost and benefits sort of appropriately, I think. Um, uh, the, 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 um, I mean, I think there's some legal issues around putting it on the, on the childhood schedule that I don't have any particular expertise in. But uh, uh, And I don't know why the ACIP members would, would reflect those legal issues. They, they're, they're paid to be, or they're, they're called to be uh, experts in the in the. In the uh, whether the vaccine is a good idea for children or not, not to think. Well, I'd, I'd like to understand what, what conflict of interest they have, um, who is actually paying them, what royalties are they getting, et cetera. I mean, my belief is under emergency use authorization, which all the COVID vaccines are being used uh, right now, 
definitionally, the vaccine companies get liability protection. So if you're injured by a COVID vaccine, because it's investigational under emergency use authorization, the vaccine companies, you can't sue the vaccine companies for liability. Um, if these vaccines are approved, that changes that. The, however, if the vaccines are put on the childhood schedule, then once they're approved, they maintain that liability protection. Any vaccine that's on the childhood schedule, those vaccine companies get liability protection, even if those vaccines are now given to adults. So I can't help but think there's enormous financial pressure on these members, on the CDC, from the pharmaceutical company to make sure this vaccine gets onto the childhood schedule to give them continued liability protection. Now, you know, maybe that's a bit conspiracy theory stuff, but you know, I've been, I've been hearing about this ever since they were originally brought to market, uh, that eventually as the FDA now looks to approve these vaccines, that the only, re the only way these vaccine companies are going to continue to provide product, especially if they're approved, is if they have that umbrella of liability protection by putting them on the childhood schedule. There, there is no other reason to put them on the childhood schedule. I looked this up uh, just today. You can, anybody can do it who's listening. CDC COVID deaths by age. <clears throat> Less than 18, it's like, I don't know, 12, 1,500 deaths. And then when you drill down into the kids that have actually died, every single one of them has significant comorbidities. There are no healthy deaths, healthy kids that die from COVID. The statistical chance of a child less than 18 dying from COVID, there are so many zeros after the decimal point that it's statistically zero. So I just can't think of any other reason why you would put a vaccine on the schedule. You would recommend that a child that has a 0% risk of dying of this illness you would put this product in their arm when there are no long-term safety studies because it's an investigational product. It makes no sense. And in my opinion, it's a form of child abuse to be vaccinating a child that is not at risk. It makes no sense at all. We wouldn't do that with other vaccines. And I don't know why we would do that here. I, mean, I, I, I don't know the legal aspects of this, but I'll say that CDC has acted as if it were captured by Pfizer. In fact, um, they have a uh, PR firm that they hired, uh, the CDC did, uh, that actually also worked for Pfizer in the vaccine, uh, the, in the immunization uh, uh, vi viral infection branch of the CDC. So it really, there really is conflicts of interest in play. I, I have to say, I don't know about the ACIP members, the, the, the people who voted 15 to nothing. They tend, they're not part of the CDC, they're independent experts. I'm disappointed in the, in the result, but I don't know, I wouldn't say that I know for a fact that they're conflicted. Well, listen, they're, they're, in, they're independent, when, but when they vote unanimously 15 to zero, it's hard to believe that they're actually independent. There wasn't a single person that pushed back that said, listen, this isn't a good idea. Kids don't get sick from COVID. We don't have any long-term safety studies, so why are we doing this? Not a single member of that committee pushed back or voted against it. I mean, I've sat on committees like this, you know, scientific panels, and what happens is uh, the staff prepare the, the meeting materials, and it's clear the direction they want you to vote. Um, and it's hard to push back when the, once the staff has put forward its argument. And so it's, I think it's something probably like that. The, CDC, the question is why uh, is the CDC pushing for this? And as you say, you're, which I agree with, the clinical evidence for this vaccine for children is, is, is minimal. I mean, 
I don't, there is no study that shows any mortality benefit from this vaccine for children. None. There is no, uh, the, you, you mentioned the 1,200 child deaths from, um, from COVID over the last two and a half years under 18. A, a lot of those are actually p- kids that died with COVID rather than from COVID. An unspecified number of those. Um, and, you know, if you, you have to put it in context. That's, I mean, every child dying is a, is a tragedy. Um, the issue is that uh, we've harmed millions of other children. We've harmed their life prospects by closing schools, by by damaging their their uh, their, their ability to socialize, um, and that has long term consequences on their health. Uh, the social science evidence suggests that children that are restricted in this way in terms of schooling will lead shorter, less healthy lives. There was one estimate early in the pandemic. That's found that I think it was like five and a half million life years lost just from the spring closures alone in the United States. Um, so you have to like put these things in context. These are these are trade offs that we have to get to make. I, I don't think the vaccine would have prevented basically any of those deaths. Certainly, we don't have any evidence, clinical evidence, that suggests that it would have prevented any of those twelve hundred deaths. And then, of course, we know that the vaccines can directly harm children, especially males, with pericarditis. Um, and uh, myocarditis. I mean, that's we know that. So why why even take that risk when kids aren't even at risk? You know, Mark, you see kids, of course, in your practice. What what has been your experience now with uh, the parents and so forth, hearing that this vaccine now may be mandated in California to attend schools? I drove to work yesterday and I saw a bulletin, a, a bulletin board, a, a billboard on my way to the office with a picture of two children about seven, eight years old on it. And on the bottom of the bulletin board, it says, billboard, it says, kids gonna kid, vaccines gonna protect. And it said, brought to you by ca.gov. So these are our tax dollars being used, as Jay just said, as in a propaganda campaign. And I say that literally, propaganda, because it's a lie. As you just said, Jade, the vaccines don't protect. They don't prevent transmission. They don't prevent, uh, well, they do prevent, in some cases, the development of immunity, which is another issue. The study just came out recently that showed that kids that uh, have received these shots are actually more likely to develop uh, illness and infection than those that didn't, most of whom already have natural immunity anyway. Over 70% of children are estimated to already have natural immunity, probably lifelong. So I get to the office and I see kid after kid after kid, and all the parents are telling me, you know what, we were trying to hang in there for the last couple of years. We either got fake cards, or we put our kids in homeschool, or we went to private or charter. We're trying to evade the vaccine Nazis. And now it looks like there may be no place to hide. If California follows the commission's requirements and public and private schools all set in and dig in and force these shots on our our children, then we're just going to have to leave. We're going to have to move. And some of them have already purchased properties or developed uh, you know apartments in other states like Texas or Arizona or Florida. Uh, two of those states have already come out with their governors and formally said that they will not allow any vaccine mandates in their states, period, end of story, no debate. So this may end up becoming a, a very clear state by state battle where people just relocate to states where they don't have to put up with this. 
So I, I, and these are not, by the way, these are not all, you know, conservative or Republican politically families. These are, you know, I'm Santa Monica, kind of middle of the road, liberal Democrats. So to them, this is not really a political issue. This is really an issue over whether or not they have as parents the right to make medical decisions for their children in order to go to school. And a lot of them are seeing that they may not. So I don't, I don't think, as a, as a child psychiatrist, I don't think that there's support for this broadly across the spectrum of parents here in, in West Los Angeles, which you would think would be one of the most supportive traditionally of these sorts of mandates. And, and they're not. They're, they're really upset. Yeah. And, we're, you know, I saw a billboard with a picture of a, uh, a pregnant woman. You're not allowed to say that, by the way. You have to call them a pregnant person, <laughs> not a pregnant woman. A birthing woman. person. Yeah. And uh, the the sign said, and I'm looking at it now: COVID-19 vaccination among pregnant people associated with 60% reduced risk of COVID-19 hospitalization in babies younger than six months old. So they're now advocating all the way down to six months old, and if you're pregnant, to get a COVID vaccine during pregnancy. Never mind that there hasn't been any studies. Never mind that there's no long-term safety data. Never mind that we're now discovering that the spike protein uh, can be transmitted in uh, breast milk. Um, but forget all that. Let's just go ahead and vaccinate and roll the dice because there is a lot of money to be made with pushing vaccines on the next group of unvaccinated people, and that's the kids um, and young women that are that are going to become pregnant. So. It's, it's hard not to be just really bitter about what's going on here. And our healthcare industry is just getting decimated, both from public opinion um, and just the, the, the stifling of the practice of medicine. It's, ter it's terrible. I'm, I'm embarrassed that more of my colleagues haven't signed on with our lawsuit. I'm embarrassed that more doctors haven't spoke out against these mandates and against uh, even the draconian measures of pushing Paxlovid over ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and all that. We've, we've had our rights and our freedoms as physicians taken away, and it's directly harming patients, unfortunately. I think uh, doctors might disagree on, on various aspects of what the evidence says. But the problem is that if, if you, when you censor alternate viewpoints, you don't have uh, a, a capacity to, to hash those out. So for instance, I'm not, I'm not sold on the, on the evidence on, on hydroxychloroquine. And the evidence on ivermectin seems to be coming out mixed. I, I don't know. It's hard to say. Um, but uh, but uh, it's something, it's a, for whatever reason, we have this like strange thing where you, if you decide that for your patient that ivermectin is the right thing to do, you lose your license. It makes no sense for a safe drug. Um, you, you, uh, you have uh, uh, the vaccine, as, as you say, Jeff, which I agree with, the vaccine, it's just not prudent in, in young, young people. You, you want randomized evidence before you make a recommendation like that. Randomized evidence with a real clinical benefit. It's not just antibody production with immune bridging, but actual clinical outcomes that you care about. Prevention of death, prevention of, of hospitalizations, randomized, good randomized solid evidence. There's none of that. Um, it is, I'm, I'm not leaving out the possibility at some point in the future, good randomized evidence is developed with a better vaccine that, that, makes, it, that makes the cost benefit of or the, the, the benefit harm um, calculation in the favor of the vaccination for kids. I, I, it's possible. We're nowhere near that yet. Um, I mean, you can have the vaccine, I guess, for children and, and then recommend it for children in, in, you know, the immunocompromised kids or whatever. But even there, we don't really have good evidence. Um, what we should be doing is returning to evidence-based medicine. Instead, we, we are, are making policy 
for kids on the fly on the basis of very marginal evidence. Um, the CDC has been doing this. And it's, I don't, I don't uh, know that they understand how damaging that is for trust. It is, it is a, it is, uh, it's, it's made the CDC go transform from the most trusted uh, public health agency in the world to essentially a laughingstock. Um, and it's, it's just sad to watch. You know, I've, I've been shocked by something that never comes up, and it hasn't even come up in our conversation today, which is interesting, which is we talk about these shots, these so-called vaccines, and I say so-called because they don't actually act as vaccines. They're medical therapeutics. They don't provide, I mean, you know, they don't immune, immunize anyone, and they don't protect against transmission of disease. But what's never talked about is is early treatment or actual treatment of infection, ever. And I was driving to work today and I heard a commercial. This is the first time I've heard a commercial for two and a half years. It said, are you at a high risk of developing symptoms, hospitalization, dying from this virus? Um, wouldn't you like to have uh, an oral medication that you can use to treat this? And I thought, hallelujah, we're finally advertising zinc, vitamin D, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, budesonide, uh, fluvoxamine. I mean, it's a list of 16 different medications that are FDA approved that are you know generic that have various degrees of evidence to show that they're both safe and effective, at least at the early stages for preventing hospitalization and death. I said, this is amazing. We finally started to go away from these, these so-called vaccines. And then the announcer says, call your doctor and ask for your simple uh, short course of oral medication. And then there is a pause and it said, brought to you by Pfizer. So, this, I think, is, is in a nutshell, to reinforce what Jeff said, I think the answer or the explanation to why we're still seeing this push you know, towards all roads lead to vaccination, and there's not a single road towards early treatment unless that treatment is brought to you by the same company that is manufacturing the vaccines. So it's, it's very difficult for me as, a, as an observer, much less as a clinician, to not conclude that there is not just bias, but endemic, systemic, not racism, but endemic, systemic, massive fraud and corruption in this process. I, I just don't see how it can be overstated because the dots and the direction markers all point in the same, uh, the same direction. I, mean, I agree with you, Mark. There, no, there's, no, no question, Mark. There's, a, there's capture. Um, I, like the, there's two notes on early treatment that are important, I think. One is, why didn't we have the answers to these early treatment uh, questions in from off-patent off drugs in 2020? There were a lot of cases in 2020. We could have developed very rapidly large-scale randomized trials on them, and we, we wouldn't have any controversy because we would know the answer one way or the other for, for these things. Instead, uh, the, uh, the Nationalist of Health, and, and, and particularly Tony Fauci's organization, Nationalist of Allergy Infectious Disease, uh, dragged their feet on testing these drugs, these off-patent drugs. Um, so, I mean, that's just a that's just a scandal. Like, we needed to have these. We don't. Who knows how many lives are lost as a as a consequence of not knowing one way or the other uh, for these off patent drugs. We did rapid st studies on remdesivir, right? So Gilead could get its drug in, into into hospitals. Um, you know, you have a you have a setting where uh, so where uh, we biased toward doing rapid studies for patented drugs and not for not off patent drugs. So that's one thing. The second thing um, is that is that the standard of evidence for the vaccine oh, for for putting it out into children, for instance, is so much lower than the standard of evidence for some of these early treatments. Why is that? 
there for early treatments. And I think it's appropriate to ask for good randomized data with good clinical endpoints to check if it works or not. That is absolutely the minimum evidence-based medicine standard to check, right? Um, that's good. Uh, why didn't we apply that same standard to the vaccine in children or the boosters or, 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 or other things? The original trials, I think, were, were pretty good. It didn't check to see if it stops transmission. The original trials it didn't check to see if it stops severe disease and death. But it seemed to be pretty. There was large trials randomized before we rolled out the vaccine or early on. There was at least enough evidence to say, look, this might protect against severe disease and death, especially for older people. Um, so I, I was. Yeah, but then, but then they vaccinated. But they vaccinated the control group, and so we don't have an ongoing control group. I mean, the argument there was that uh, if, if you know the vaccine works, it's unethical to leave the control group unvaccinated. Uh, so I can understand that. Normally what you do is you do post-market surveillance, right? So you do uh, 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 cohort studies, careful cohort studies where you track, compare vaccinated and unvaccinated matched individuals over time. And the CDC, uh, the FDA, have been really slow to release the data on those those studies. And we've had VAERS, but VAERS is, doesn't have a matched control group. Uh, on the other hand, you have excellent studies out of Qatar, out of like Denmark, out of out of Sweden, a whole bunch of places on on the the that uh, that does they do post market surveillance. Why did this in the U.S. do we not do that? Um, the standard of evidence applied to the vaccine has been absolutely much worse than uh, than we than we normally do with other vaccines, and certainly much worse than the standard of evidence applied to early treatments. It's, and um, Mark, and I agree with you. The only explanation I can come up with is is capture. Like you have essentially, you have uh, the former head of the FDA, Scott Gottlieb. He is uh, now on the Pfizer board, and he's an advisor. To, to, uh, to, uh, he's, in, he's a very influential advisor inside inside the government. You have a situation where uh, where it looks for all the world like these regulatory agencies that are supposed to be independent have been captured by pharmaceutical companies. It's, it's just a, it's tragic. If we had given eleven rats hydroxychloroquine in their feed bowl and determined that they were developing immunity and said hydroxychloroquine is now going to be paid for by the government for 300 million Americans, we would have just laughed ourselves out of our chair. And yet that's the standard of evidence to pass the recommendation for booster shots for children, 11 rats, no humans. I mean, this is, this is completely, as you said, inconsistent and exposes, you know, the emperor's nakedness. It's, it's, it's impossible to ignore this if you are a both intellectually honest and decent person. I think PETA should get involved, Mark. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listen, when you, if you look at the data, uh, just shy of 50% of the funding of the CDC comes from industry. Same thing with the FDA. It should never be that way. The FDA and the CDC should be funded by taxpayer dollars. They're supposed to work for the taxpayers, not work for a big pharma. Also, you shouldn't have a, a, a rotating thing where, like, you know, the head of the FDA then turns around and goes and sits on Pfizer's board. Right? You, you really should have strict rules that prevent that kind of uh, that kind of conflict of interest. Jr. You know, our podcast is heard all over the United States and actually around the world. Uh, so, people that are listening that are just besides themselves wondering what's going to happen in the future with medical freedom and liberty and their ability to make informed decisions about their own health care. What, what would you say to people that are, that are scared, that are fighting? What, what does the future hold and what can they do to get involved? I'm actually optimistic, Jeff. I, I think um, we've seen a tremendous uh, 
turn away, for instance, from the lockdown policies that we've been following, right? The, I don't think we're ever going to school, close schools again. That's never coming back. Um, uh, the, the, the level of distrust, while it's an unfortunate thing, the level of distrust in the CDC and public health is an unfortunate thing. On the other hand, the constructive part of that means that there's going to be impetus for reform and opportunities for reform in coming, in coming years and coming month, months and years. Um, and, uh, so, uh, and I think partly it's both reform of existing institutions and building of parallel institutions to try to, try to, you know, watchdog agencies, uh, to try to, uh, uh, make sure that what happened during the pandemic never happens again. Uh, part of it is political, unfortunately. I don't see any way around that. Um, it's going to require, uh, you know, like a church commission type of thing where we, we do a, an honest evaluation of what happened um, and then make reforms and then happen again. Uh, but that's going to require political change. Uh, the other the other aspect of it is, is the, uh, you know, I think uh, a lot of the, a lot of the effective change that's happened has come from people, regular people pushing back. Moms and dads showing up in school boards saying, "Look, why are you, why are you closing schools? What, 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 uh, what, what are you doing so that my kids can get the education they're supposed to get?" You see this grassroots movement that has developed that unifies people that used to be from very different parties. Um, at saying, "Look, this was a this was a terrible thing we did to our to ourselves, to our small businesses, to our children, to our working class, the poor." We shouldn't do it again. I think that grassroots movement will have tremendous consequences. So I'm, I'm actually hopeful, Jeff. I'm, I'm actually hopeful that we're going to use the lessons we learn and and, uh, and uh, transform our society so this this kind of thing will be, will be unthinkable in the next pandemic. Good, good. Glad to hear it. And where can people follow you if they want to learn more about what you're doing? Uh, so I'm unfortunately obsessed with Twitter nowadays. Uh, so I'm on I'm on Twitter uh, after years of telling my assistant professors not to go on Twitter. Uh, so it's. I, D D R the letter J Bhattacharya B H A T T A C H A R Y A Doctor J Bhattacharya um, and I'm, I'm pretty active there. If you had just done Doctor J B like a rapper <laughs> handle, it would have been a lot easier to find you. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Please go follow Doctor Bhattacharya and retweet his tweets and uh, send him pithy comments. So, Doctor Bhattacharya, thank you so much for joining us on Informed Dissent. It's been an honor to have you on and. Godspeed to you and the work that you're doing. Thank you. Real pleasure. You've been listening to Informed Dissent with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board-certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald, board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Informed Dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics.